Neil, this is your second time on Patrick Miner's podcast, and it's a delight to have you back. The first episode was rather narrowly focused on the biography of John Deere himself as he migrated out of Vermont into Grand Detour, Illinois, and eventually another 60 miles or so to the west in Moline, Illinois. That story was quite interesting, but this story, Tractor Wars, eclipses that. This particular story reaches into American history. It touches on marketing concepts and practices. It shows a collaboration and an intense competition between manufacturers in the very, very early 1900s. And it uniquely positions your story in an international context. There's so much in book Tractor Wars. I don't know if we're going to be able to get a satisfactory discussion of it here in this episode. If we don't, perhaps you'll be kind enough to finish up with a future episode. Yeah, I think we're going to scratch the surface here a little bit. And and, you, and you're right, it's context is so important in any story. And, and I think this book, for, for me at least... It's, it's familiar. Like names are familiar. World world events are familiar. World War One countries going through, you know, the Spanish flu, a global pandemic. There's there's a, a depression in the 1920s, which is often overlooked because we focus on the Great Depression. But all those things are, are going on and American business and industry is really growing up during this period in time. And so that's just the context around the, the story of the tractor wars. Incidentally, and not at all important to your story, I do want to make one remark, and that is regarding the naming or the of the so-called Spanish flu, apparently started at Fort Riley, a U.S. Army fort in the state of Kansas, and our troops, in fact, spread it. And I think it became known as the Spanish flu because Spain was the first country to publicly announce that it had the flu amongst its population. Yeah, one of one of those outcomes of World War One. I, I, I think that's where kind of some of the origins were traced was American soldiers coming back. And, and it also touched again, Tractor Wars is, is, is about the advent, the kind of the or the Spanish flu, it's one of those outcomes from, from World War One. You've got people traveling uh, around the world being exposed to different things, including germs. And in the United States, that actually impacts the, the tractor wars a little bit because you had horses that were catching diseases. You end up with a section of the book where some questions are, why did Henry Ford refuse to build the implements? Why was John Deere not in the first wave of the tractor manufacturers? What drove the design of Farm Hall and other large, as you said, contextual themes I think it'd be important to discuss those a little bit, and then I'd like to discuss the personality of the decision makers. It's it's really why I wrote this book was I just I had so many questions, and these are so, some of these are questions I've been asked for fifteen years, like why was John Deere so late entering the tractor business, and I never really fully understood the question from the perspective of nineteen eighteen seemed really early to me. I knew a little bit that Henry Ford entered the tractor business. I didn't realize that by the early to mid-1920s, he had 75% market share. I didn't know that he refused to, to build implements because he didn't think that there was any profit in building implements. And his goal, of course, was, was scale, similar to the Model T where you're building 
on the assembly line. He was the same for tractors. So he just had a different perspective to the to the business. And these are some of the questions I tried to answer. It's also what drove everything going on behind the scenes, like Henry Ford's relationship with several engineers at John Deere because he wanted John Deere to build a plow specifically for his Fordson tractor. So you have these conversations and discussions between all these people, and that's what really drew me into the story. From a John Deere perspective, just understanding that the first John Deere tractor wasn't made available until 1918, but research and development started in 1912, and it took that long for Deere to determine the right size of tractor, the the type of customer that might buy a tractor, how to establish and, and set up a repair network and a dealer network. So all the infrastructure that you need to sell a tractor. So it's a lot more complex than we're going to build a tractor and sell a tractor. And that was complex enough as it was. Deer, of course, personally is not part of this story. And it, it's a Mr. Yeah, William Butterworth. Now, he seems to share some of the Deer characteristic of committing himself to to a relationship with dealers and farmers that is extremely intimate. That same commitment doesn't seem evident with the other competitors. Each had a, a unique perspective. And, and I do think that, that during this period, Deere did share that with International Harvester. Harvester was just such a larger company. They were 10 times the size of John Deere at, at the turn of the 20th century. But William Butterworth, grandson, though he still had a family connection. He was Charles Deere's son-in-law. And he was doing something very difficult which he was acquiring a number of companies, expanding beneath from about 1910 to 1912, and also went into the harvesting business, building harvesting equipment, grain binders, corn binders, eventually combines, to directly compete with international. William Butterworth was essentially building a new business in the 20th century. Deere was acquiring a number of companies, trying to create what they called a full line, which is we're going to build everything that you need to operate your farm, and began to directly compete with international harvester with harvesting equipment for the first time. So you're kind of taking on the, the big player. Neil, you mentioned the fact that Deere was acquiring a lot of different companies. I think that it's an important feature of this story for you to point out just how many companies were at one time, let's say 1910, actually competitors to Deere, to Ford, to International Harvester, to all these companies. How many companies were there that were competitors? There were hundreds and hundreds of companies competing in the farm equipment space. And starting in 1912, over a two-year period, Deere made nearly a dozen acquisitions to supplement lines, to develop new product lines, things like manure spreaders, corn shellers, building the John Deere Harvester Works in 1912 to build grain binders and corn binders to compete with International Harvester for the first time. All of those products, though, are what we're going to call implements rather than tractors. Right. Basically, you need something to pull most of these implements or another machine to run these machines. And really, why I call this the bird? of modern agriculture is this is the advent of what they called mechanized farming or power farming. So now instead of horsepower, you're actually using mechanical power. You've got an internal combustion engine running your machines. Okay. Now, as I read the book, I thought of Aesop's fable regarding the tortoise and the hare. Perhaps not correctly, but I so often thought that deer was plodding along with a philosophical commitment to a certain marketing relationship that wasn't apparent with the other company's stories. It just seemed to me that Deer was committed to the idea of making a tractor, but also committed to the idea of making the most appropriate tractor regardless of its overall appearance 
its weight. It simply was a company willing to wait as a market got beyond it, with an assumption, I think, that eventually their tractor would be the answer. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right with that. And when I started working on this book, I didn't know if Deere was going to be part of it, which is a strange thing to say for, for someone who's worked at John Deere for 20 years. But Deere's approach was to figure out what the market was going to be. Tractors up to this point were large steam engines starting to make the transition to these large, what they called prairie tractors, 60 horsepower plus. They weigh eight or 10,000, 20,000 pounds. But the average farm size in the United States is 50 to 100 to 150 acres. They're small farms. And deer wasn't quite sure what the market was going to be. And there were only 2,000 tractors sold in 1907, 1908. So it wasn't a huge business yet. And Deere was trying to figure out the best way to enter this market and determine if it had staying power or not. One thing I didn't realize was the small acreage of the typical farmer. Now, certainly something happened where the farms grew exponentially in size. Let's talk about that matter for a minute. In 1920, the average farm size was 150 acres. Of course, out west, you're going to have farms that are 3,000 acres, so that's going to kind of skew the averages. It also doesn't account for tillable land. So you may own 100 acres, but you're only actually farming 30 or 40 of those acres because the rest is timber. What the farm tractor is going to do is allow you to clear more land and farm more of the land you already own. Actually are ideally suited to that small Fordson tractor. Well, in October of 19. 1908, everyone's heard of him because he introduces the Model T and gets kind of distracted by his emerging automobile empire. Takes him a while to introduce his farm tractor, but when he does, it's the right size and it's inexpensive. It's half the price of most farm tractors. Ford had a remarkable strategy, and that is he didn't seem to care about profitability. He seemed to be only concerned with market share. I think that ultimately is a financial problem for him. Henry Ford saw steam engine when he was 12. He was fascinated by it. He, he wanted to build a farm tractor. His own board of directors at the Ford Motor Company wouldn't let him do it because it wasn't going to be profitable. And, and his son Edsel later said that they lost $100 on every tractor they ever sold. So it was never profitable, but he thought it was the right thing to do. He was willing to incur the losses to gain that market share. Where he ran into trouble was as the market changed. And he refused to change the Fordson tractor. That's where he really got into trouble. And I think that's the difference between Ford and his competitors, particularly Deere and International Harvester during this period. Okay, I want to go back to this consolidation of the manufacturers. It's an incredible fact that there were thousands of small companies to be making farm tractors. And eventually, is it maybe 20 years that it's not thousands of manufacturers, but maybe just a few hundred? Yeah. And so there were thousands building farm implements. There were hundreds building farm tractors specifically. And again, the, the, the numbers are tricky. There's probably six or eight building farm tractors. And, and we mean gasoline farm tractors or kerosene, which is an alternative type of fuel in the 19 teens. By the 1920s, there's over 160 farm tractor manufacturers. And a decade later, you're back to a handful. So there's this kind of huge bell curve of tractor manufacturers. There are also machine shops, specifically places like Minneapolis, where one machine shop is cutting gears and assembling tractors for maybe 12 different companies. So it's it's highly competitive. 
They come and go. A lot of them build one tractor or five tractors and then disappear. But there's only a few that are really building to scale. In that transition, there's also an important cross-pollinization where manufacturers are collaborating where important personnel in one company move on to a competitor. Let's spend a little time talking about that important mix. It's one of my favorite parts of the book, which is deer engineers are going to uh, Dearborn, Michigan to visit Henry Ford and all of his designers, Eugene Farkas and Charlie Sorensen, testing machines. And when Theo Brown from Deer gets there, there's representatives from International Harvester or the Moline Plow Company or Hart Par. There, there's, there's these other people who are always here. So they're working, they're competing against each other. They're working behind the scenes. One of the, the things that have, has often been said to me was that Deere's tractor operation was so secretive in the 19-teens before we introduced the Waterloo Boy in 1918. And I think the book very much debunks that myth because Everyone was coming to town to help them figure out the, their, their tractor solution. Whether you built carburetors or engines or if, if you were a wheel manufacturer, um, if you designed seats for automobiles, everyone had an open invitation and they were coming to town to, to try to solve all of these problems. So if, if it was a secret, it was the worst kept secret on the planet at the time. Hmm. They're going to Dearborn, though. Are they going to the facility that Ford owns and operates? Are they going to a competitor's manufacturing site? They're they're going to to visit Ford's assembly operations, Ford's running experimental farms. All of these companies have experimental farms all over the place. Um, Deer had what they called the horseless farm, where you could only use mechanized farming techniques. And that's where they did all their testing there. International Harvester had the same thing um, in Hinsdale outside of Chicago. So they were visiting each other's factories. I know it's kind of a shock, but they were visiting each other's factories. They were learning, but they were also going after different markets often. And so I think that's one of the interesting perspectives here is Deere's introducing a certain type of tractor so as not to compete maybe with the Fordson or some of the international harvester offerings. So they're they're offering kind of complementary lines instead of always competing directly with one another in, in every market. The mix of people in Dearborn reminds me of some business experience I had in the mid to late eight, 1980s. I would go to the every other year international machine tool show held at the McCormick Place in Chicago. And every year that I was there, three or four of those shows, there was a swarm of other individuals that weren't there to display anything. They were walking around with cameras and notepads, and they were taking pictures of every machine tool from every angle and making notes. Eventually, that base of knowledge is used in, let's say, Japan, where the Mazak International Tool Company forms and produces very, very good machine tool shows and lathes. So this idea of these people getting together in Dearborn in the Ford assembly area reminds me so much of that because obviously engineers from the other companies are picking up on insights 
that they will later use in their competition with each other. Yeah, it's it's exactly true. And remember, they're they're trying to solve common problems, right? They're they're at the end of the day, they're trying to make farming operations more profitable for their customers. Um, they're trying to increase yields, and that's what was driving a lot of this. You have a declining farm population, so you have fewer people needing to produce more food for for the country, and and, and ultimately globally. So they're trying to solve for these big problems. And what they're doing is, is they're sharing techniques. For example, Ford sends deer to visit his steel supplier because they're building Model T bodies out of vanadium steel, which is a stronger, lighter steel. And, and he says to deer, go, go see how they do it because we need stronger plows to withstand, um, kind of the rigors of tractor work, which is different than pulling up a, a plow with, with a team of horses. So you're having to kind of change production methods as well. So in that case, Ford is asking someone from Deere to go to Central Steel in Massillon, Ohio, to get insights on this new lightweight steel. Yeah, you're exactly right. And and Ford's playing each other off of one another. He's got a deal with the Oliver Chilled Plow Company. They're building plows for the Fordson tractor. He's trying to get deer playing these these companies off of one another. So he's sharing certain kind of trade secrets with one but not the other in order to encourage that competition. Fascinating. The, the psychology that it seems like Ford is the principal character of stirring this pot. He is. He, see, he, he very much accelerated the industry. And, and I think that's the contribution here is, you know, a, a good tractor, an inexpensive tractor. When we get into the early 1920s, when there's a, an, an agricultural recession, he drops the price of a tractor to $395. Deer selling a Waterloo boy for $1,200. There's a big disparity there. Um, but he very much accelerates adoption. And, um, you know, I, I think today about the electric vehicle industry, kind of the same thing. You've got some of these entrepreneurs who are accelerating adoption. Maybe they're not as profitable as they could be or should be. For, um, so I'll be anxious to see if they're still around in 15 or 20 years. But Ford is very much a, a central character in, in this book and really driving the industry. Okay, so we now know that the industry has consolidated the tractor industry in terms of the number of manufacturers. We've also touched on the important theme of how personnel from one competitor to the other work with, collaborate, and compete with another. And now I understand that Mr. Ford himself, as I said, seems to be the magician. He seems to be the one that's most active in stirring up the pot of competition and ideas. Yeah, it's 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 absolutely right. And he, you know, but he, he makes mistakes along the way, as as everyone does. And and one of those is he kind of overestimates the how good of a tractor he's built. He has the same problem with his automobile. He says the Model T is the perfect automobile. I'm not going to change anything. He says the same thing with the Fordson tractor. What happens is the market evolves. And for farmers, they say, well, yeah, this tractor was good for my first one, but now I need to replace it. My operations changed. Now I'm growing corn and I need a different type of, of machine for that operation because I want to cultivate while the corn is growing early in the season. And I need a taller machine. Or now instead of 
just cultivating one or two rows. I want to do four rows. So now I'm, I'm, I'm getting more bang for my buck and Ford says, nope, I'm going to build the same tractor. Whereas competitors say, no, we're going to evolve the machine form. We're going to design something specifically for wheat farmers or corn farmers, or if you're growing alfalfa or oats. So you start to see more customized machine forms and Ford begins to be left behind in the mid to late 1920s. On top of all, though, there is the influence of World War I. There is the fact that Ford is manufacturing equipment in both Ireland and I think eventually moves from Ireland to England. And on top of that, I think the United States federal government is a big buyer and a big uh, sharp uh, market shaper. Can we touch on some of those things? Yeah, World War One is is a great influencer in, in a lot of ways. One is there's some U.S. tractor manufacturers who stop selling domestically because they're designing track-type tractors instead of wheel tractors that they're shipping overseas to support the war effort. So when the war ends, they're, they're kind of locked out of Henry Ford government to um, sell about 6,000 of his tractors. To, to the British government to, to help them raise food to support the British army and the British people. Eventually, he brokers a deal in the United States in 1918, um, what was called war production boards or distribution boards. So each state had one. Um, so everyone's kind of uh, scurrying to catch up with him. And, and so he's very shrewd in his business practices and dealings where he negotiates these guaranteed terms and guaranteed sales. And that's what allows him to kind of start his operation. In your book, you make a comment about the fact that Ford is, I get the feeling, the first company to be centered on a vast array of low-cost, interesting products for consumers of all kinds, not just in the agricultural market. It's, it's what Ford was all about, is the selling to as many people as possible, and, and, and it just it drives a lot of other things. Emerging from the war, you've got a major population shift in the United States. You have young people returning from the war. They don't want to go back to the family farm. They want to go get a factory job and live in the city. Um, now I've maybe got a little money in my pocket. I can buy a radio. There's electricity in the cities. I, I know someone with an automobile, so now I've got freedom to to travel that I never had before. So all these demographic shifts are driving adoption of new technologies. There's fewer farm hands. You know, my kids have left the farm, so now I need greater productivity with fewer people, and I have to figure out a way to make all of this work. So there's there's an awful lot going on post World War 1. With that in mind, I wonder what happened in Germany or Italy, some of the Axis powers as relates to ag equipment development. Do you know much about that? Um, I don't. I mean, it, it does impact it. It's a company like International Harvester. Uh, I mean, they've got factories in Germany. They've got factories in France. Those are shut down during the war. They've got operations in Russia. So half of their sales, and they're a $100 million company, half of that comes outside of the United States, which which is kind of amazing to think about during this period. They're one of the largest companies in the United States. We, we are going to see 
For example, in, in Germany, a, a company called Heinrich Lanz, which John Deere actually acquires in 1960, they're starting to develop some of this technology as well. Their first tractor doesn't come out until 1921. But there's similar kind of effort being made in, in these countries as well. But the ripple effect, I think, is is some of these these global operations. You're also seeing a lot of, I guess I'll say theft. So you'll see in Russia specifically, they're building knockoff Ford, Fords and tractors where they're buying American tractors and they're basically replicating the technology to the best of their ability instead of designing these from scratch. So there's a lot of that going on during. And so I think there's something real important to be said about the fact that Deere just plodded along and in fact becomes company. In fact, let me ask you this. Is Deere the, the most successful tractor company right now? Deere is. And, and, and again, it's a matter of definition. There's, there's a company in India that claims to be the largest tractor manufacturer in the world because they're looking at units sold and they build small tractors. So it depends on, on what you're looking at. If you're looking at the most acres harvested with your equipment, it's going to be John Deere. There is another part of the conversation, which, and that is that Ford gets to the point where cash flow forces him to make the decision to walk away from the ag market and simply stay with the auto market. And I think you also mentioned that that decision was remarkable because at the time Ford owned or controlled the majority of the tractor business in the United States. Ford had 75% market share in the tractor business in the mid-1920s. But the automobile empire is crumbling. General Motors, Cadillac, Willis, a, a lot of competitives are evolving the automobile. You can go to General Motors and get a, an automobile painted almost any color you wanted. Uh, braking systems have evolved. And Henry Ford finally is convinced that you've got to upgrade the Model T. To do that, you design a new car, which becomes the Model A. You've got to shut down all your facilities. You've got to retool. You've got to rebuild your assembly lines. He's going to have to do the same with the tractor, and they just economically it doesn't make sense to do it. And that's really where this book wraps up is Ford's exit, his his exit from the the tractor business domestically in the United States, and what that means for John Deere, for International Harvester, for some of the other competitors, leading into kind of the next major consolidation of the agricultural implement industry. Yeah, that particular part of the story, it's a fascinating conclusion to the development of the car versus the tractor and the fact that he finally turns to the automobile and is willing to paint it a different color. He comes to realize that he has to be flexible enough to produce a car that is not only reliable and extremely low cost, but one that just has a certain flash. Yeah, and it's a cautionary tale, and you've got to listen to your customers. Uh, their their tastes change. Their expectations change. And you, you've got to get out there, and you've got to understand how, how that impacts your product because the the air is gone where you could just sell a one-size-fits-all sort of, of solution, and they're going to buy it because they really don't have any other alternatives. That world is is over by the, the mid to late 1920s. And, and, and everything's changed, and, and how do you respond to that? Would you like to add anything right now, something that we've skipped that you think is fundamentally important to bring into this conversation? So please, is there anything else? I, th I think something that's really important to me in this book is we, we can talk about machines, we can talk about kind of the, the context of the world, 
but it, it all comes down to the people and the personalities. And, and there's, there's so many people who I think are, are just kind of lost to history. And, and for me, it was important to kind of resurface their names and their contributions. And, and that's just something that I'm, I'm really proud of. And, and I hope people will be excited to, to learn about these people, who they were, what they did, because uh, they definitely left a, a lasting legacy. You made a reference to a different kind of sales agency in your book, The Tractor Wars. And that reference was through the Sears and Roebuck catalog. How did that kind of a, a new sales agency affect the business? It was just a, a new model, you know, ordering from a, a catalog. Think about you know, ordering on Amazon today. It's just a fundamental shift in, in how you buy goods and services. And, and Sears and Roebuck, you, you could buy seed. You could eventually buy a farm tractor. You could buy your implements. You can buy everything, all, all your household goods. And it was kind of a one-stop shop for anything you could possibly need. And it's just a, another one of those fundamental changes in American life. And, and it's so fun when you look at history and you see these major kind of movements that shape the way people live. But it's also reactionary as well. And then watching everyone try to catch up and compete, I think, is just really fun to see and, and kind of exciting because it makes a lasting impact. Conversations at the boardrooms had to have been strained and exciting because, for example, Deere and Company had a fundamental commitment to their dealer network and, in many cases, directly with the farmers. Now, they give all that up if they participate in something like the Sears and Roebuck style of marketing and sales. Has there been much that you've uncovered on that theme? Probably a, a, an entirely um, separate podcast. And really what I loved about Deer International Harvester and Ford is you could not approach the business in, in three different ways than, than the three of those companies did. From a dealer network or sales network, from service and repair to machine forms to pricing, all different strategies and approaches based on on your track record, your history, your relationship with your customers, and really what your company's all about. But something else that, that I really enjoyed learning about was all of the what ifs, all of the almost deals that happened and never happened, all of the products that were almost built but never built, decisions. For example, John Deere got together in 1921 to decide if they were going to exit the tractor business. They were going to sell it off because they didn't necessarily see a future. Imagine how different the world would be if John Deere was only in the tractor business for three years. There's a good chance John Deere wouldn't exist today. So you can look back at these decisions that were big decisions at the time. But when you look back 100 years later, you say, yeah, that was a pretty big decision that almost never happened. Remind us the details of your book and how our listeners buy it. I'd, I'd appreciate that. The book is Tractor Wars, John Deere, Henry Ford, International Harvester, and the Birth of Modern Agriculture. And you can find it at most bookstores, um, online at Amazon, Barnes & Noble. And you can buy it in hardback, ebook, or even an audiobook version if you prefer to listen. We've concluded this episode and we'll work towards a third episode. Mr. Dahlstrom, you've got an excellent book here. You've got a big contribution, in my humble opinion, to the uh, story of agriculture. And I'm most grateful for your willingness, your time and courtesies to be on Patrick Miner's podcast again. Thank you. And I uh, really enjoyed it. 
Okay, we'll sign off now. And, well, let me say what I've said many times. Test negative. Be positive.